Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Benmir. Today's guest is Nicholas Sambanis, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Identity and Conflict Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. He writes on conflict processes with a focus on civil wars and other forms of intergroup conflict and founded the Identity and Conflict Lab at Penn, which works on a broad range of topics related to intergroup conflict, both violent and nonviolent forms of conflict. In today's episode, Alana Nicholas discuss his latest book, which will be published later this year, co-authored with Danny Choi and Matthias Portner, examining bias and discrimination against immigrants using Germany as a case study. I read uh, much of the book. I'm not going to say I read it page, you know, from page one to the last page, but I read significant part of it. Needless to say, it's an extraordinarily impressive analysis of what uh, immigration is all about, specifically the immigrants coming to Europe, what they are facing as immigrants, and what the native uh, society did in, throughout Europe feeling about it. And of course, you're using Germany uh, as an example, because yeah. Germany, in fact, uh, was the recipient of the largest wave of immigrants in the last 10 years. And, uh, and I think for good reason, you are depicting Germany as such. But before I get into, and I, since you're the expert, I'm not, <laughs> when it comes to immigration. <laughs> Albeit, I personally, myself, experienced what you've been so eloquently describing in your book, uh, in terms of uh, identity, to the extent to which an immigrant can adjust uh, to, to the new environment, uh, to the extent that the native actually can adjust to the immigrants. Uh, I, if I may, I will tell you a little story, personal sure. story, so that will put things in the proper context. And I was born in Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, in Iraq. And as a child, I used, they used to call me a dirty Jew. <laughs> That's a dirty Jew or a dog, so to speak. That was in Iraq. Uh, on, and even though I was a native, I was born in there, but I had a different religion. Uh, when I went to Israel, I thought, well, now this is an Israeli society. There are larger Jews. But I, my position was only slightly elevated. I've been treated as a black Jew. Oh. So even though I was among Jews uh, from all over the world, I was treated. And to this day, to this day, which is really sad, uh, there's still significant discrimination against Jews coming from the Middle East or from Arab countries for that matter. Uh, but then I decided, well, I went to Britain to study. I went to Oxford. And uh, after many years there, almost five years, I was still treated like a foreigner, not ever as a, as a British in any sense. And when finally I ended up in the United States more than 40 years ago, uh, I was treated as alone than here. But then, but then in the last four or five years, I was, um, I mean, uh, to say this, this illusion is an understatement about what's happening either, either here or in the United States with the rise of Trump to power and the uh, overt, overt discrimination, uh, resistance to new immigrants, specifically from South America, certainly from the Arab world. And that is after 200, more than 200 years of experiment in democracy and freedom. And the United States in particular is a, is a land of immigrants. But we are now re-witnessing 
the residue of that discrimination continue to be even here in the United States. And as a matter of fact, we are now at the crossroads in, in this country as to what's going to happen in terms of the fear of the Republican Party that the minorities eventually, sooner than later, will become the majority. And, and they are doing everything in their power, everything they can to prevent not only uh, American citizen, Black and Hispanic, to, to have equal rights, equal opportunities, and equal right to, uh, the opportunity to vote as American. But certainly, uh, there is a significant, as you well know, I'm sure, uh, discussion about the immigration. We do not have a specific policy, clear policy as to how to deal now with, uh, with immigrants. I just wanted you to have this little background from my perspective, but I would like to may ask you now, uh, yeah. for the listener, for our listeners, you, you wrote this magnificent book, which is terrific analysis of what immigration is, or specifically in the European continent. You. If you can first uh, summarize to our audience, what is your position in, in, in principle? And then we can start off tackle that piece by piece as we go. Sure. Uh, I mean, the story that you started out with is uh, meaningful and uh, it resonates with me and it suggests that, you know, in every country in the world, newcomers uh, face obstacles in getting integrated, even when distance separating them. Uh, from the native population, and that seems to be consistent with your uh, with your story, uh, and uh, the juxtaposition that that you made between uh, your experiences in uh, in Israel and in the UK versus the United States is also interesting because uh, the the obstacles that newcomers and immigrants face in integration are seem to me to be higher in countries that have. A tradition of ethnic nationalism as opposed to civic nationalism. Um, so where people think that, that someone to identify with 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 the nation and and to claim it as your own, you have to look a certain way or you have to believe certain things, um, and that and you're and you're born into that identity as opposed to acquiring it by choice. You know. So in the United States, they have the model where. Um, you become an American by uh, moving here, working hard and doing um, whatever else Americans think define American identity and being patriotic and, and, and serving this country. Whereas in other countries, that's not enough. So in, in Europe in particular, uh, there are significant obstacles to integration faced by, uh, by people uh, who are considered to be newcomers, even if they're there for two or three generations. And the, the book that we wrote on Germany is uh, in a sense, an effort to understand why these obstacles are so, so large. And as you mentioned, even in the United States, which has developed this, this, this myth of the melting pot, you know, identity and tribalism have are resurgent and are increasingly important in, in politics and society and partisan identities in particular seem to be very strong these days uh, and they shape people's preferences with respect to different policies and with respect to different groups uh, in ways that many people 
could not predict, you know, and back in the 60s, um, when the Moynihan report and other studies of the assimilation came out, the idea was, or the, the thought was that ethnic identities and, and parochial attachments would fade uh, and national identity and, and the idea of American identity would, would, would prevail, but that doesn't seem to have happened, right? So, um, so why is that, you know? And in this book that uh, D uh, Danny <coughs> Choi and Matthias Portner and I wrote, uh, we try to answer that question with respect to Germany, but it's not really just about Germany. It's about uh, a common experience faced by immigrants in, in Europe. And the main argument is that uh, there is opposition to, to immigrants and to newcomers uh, in those countries as there is in the United States and, and everywhere really on the basis of ascriptive differences that separate uh, different groups. Uh, but we try to understand what hides behind those ascriptive differences, right? So, you know, why do people discriminate against Muslims in Germany? Or why do people, uh, why do white people discriminate against black people in the United States? So is it, is it strictly the racial attributes or the religious attributes that separate the groups that, that explain bias and discrimination? Or is it something else that hides behind it? And we designed a number of experiments to tease that out. And we argued that uh, at the heart of these conflicts and of the bias that native populations feel towards uh, immigrants is a belief that there are deep normative differences that separate them uh, and that these differences are just hard to overcome. And we show uh, going beyond this observation that bias is driven by normative differences and values conflict or conflict over values we show that it is possible to overcome at least part of that difference that divides natives and immigrants if, if natives update their beliefs that the normative differences that divide them um, from the immigrant population are just very large, right? So if immigrants behave in a way that shows that they actually share some of the same ideas and same values as the native population, in many instances, discrimination will, will cease, or it will certainly diminish. Do you, do you really believe that uh, there are circumstances under which discrimination does diminish, given the fact, for example, talking about Muslim immigrants going to, to Germany or to any other European country? Uh, there's one distinction that uh, it's in, almost imp basically impossible to ameliorate, to China, that is a religion. Uh, mm -hmm. Islam as a religion, but Islam as a religion is more than just a belief, a set of beliefs. It is also a culture. For example, how to treat gender, how to treat women uh, in Islam. So there's a specific rules, regulation in terms of that, which means no matter how well Muslim immigrants might want to adjust to the new environment, culture, the new culture, they are not abdicating, they're not abandoning their religion. And so they still have that load they have to carry on their back because that's who they are. But for the natives, this still represents a significant block, a significant obstacle in terms of complete and full integration. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's a good point. Now, I'm not a, a scholar of religion, so I can't speak um, 
to what uh, any specific religion believes with respect to a specific issue such as uh, gender roles or gender norms. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, what the native population believes um, is the Muslim position vis-a-vis -vis gender may be based on uh, prejudice or, or, or generalizations that do not necessarily apply to everyone. So in Germany, for example, as part of this book, um, and I believe we've included this information in the uh, either the first chapter or the sixth chapter, I'm not quite sure. Uh, we, we looked at surveys of public opinion with respect to uh, gender and the role of women in society. And I'm mentioning it now because it's a big part of the book and it's also consistent with the, uh, the, you know, the, the point that you just made. And we found that over time, uh, German society, the native German society has become much more progressive vis-a-vis -vis gender issues. So in the 1980s, uh, a very large percentage of Germans believed, for example, that women should stay at home and not work and should just take care of the, of the house, that men should make the decisions in the home and so forth. Over time, that percentage has shrunk to uh, single digits perhaps, or maybe 10% or, or so. But the same kind of, uh, uh, trend is observed in uh, uh, Muslims living in Germany. Uh, so Muslim immigrants or immigrants um, from, from predominantly Muslim countries who, uh, who exhibit similarly progressive positions on average, there might be a slight uh, intercept difference, but the trend seems to be the same. And the difference is not, is not as severe, it definitely not as severe as it is when you compare majority opinion in Muslim uh, majority countries uh, at home to majority opinion in Germany, where we do see you know, larger differences. So that could be for a number of reasons, right? So it could be the case that when uh, immigrants from Muslim countries um, immigrate over time, they absorb uh, local norms, and they converge to the majority opinion. Um, or it could be that they actually held those, those beliefs all along. Um, and when they are in a different environment where majority opinion is more favorable uh, to a progressive position vis-a-vis -vis women, for example, uh, they are free to express those opinions. Right? So I'm not, I don't, I don't think that the bias that we observe is due to what actual differences exist in the two religions vis-a-vis -vis the treatment of women, for example, I do know that it's, uh, it's driven by beliefs about those differences. Right? And those beliefs might actually be exaggerated. Uh, and they might be based on stereotypes and biases that people hold. Uh, and in the, in the book that you, that you read, we, we use experiments that manipulate those perceptions. And we, 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 are, we are then able to observe the effect of changing those beliefs. And we found that when you, when you stage an intervention, an experimental intervention that changes the belief that a Muslim woman is regressive vis-a-vis -vis gender norms uh, and does not support uh, equality between men and women, then uh, native German women stop being discriminatory towards that, that woman even though they clearly know that she's Muslim because in the experiments, the person who's conveying that position is wearing a hijab, right? So it is possible to disassociate 
the religion and the symbols of religious difference, such as the hijab, for example, from the beliefs about the political implications of those differences. Now, it is also true that if those differences actually persist, those normative differences and those differences in values, then our, our book, our research shows that bias and discrimination and conflict between groups will persist. So that, that, is, that is the point that is, as long as what you are coming, the, the uh, ethnic nationalism, that is uh, Germany in particular can be singled out as it has specific ethnic nationalism and perhaps the resistance to immigrants, specifically from the Muslim world, is, is more pronounced perhaps mm -hmm. in other places, albeit this, there was, as you, as you alluded, suggested in your book, there was significant progress, but still, even with that progress, today we still see that regardless how much effort the Muslim community have put and try to assimilate themselves, studying the language, trying to adapt some uh, German culture in various fields, uh, they are still seen as an outsider. Uh, still largely they are seen as an outsider. And what is going to take to further shake up this reality and begin so that, is it possible in the first place to change that reality and say, so that, because it's, whether it's true or not, regardless, it's a perception, like you said, it's a belief that they are different, that they do not belong here. This is a perception. But perception in this case, like many other cases, is just as, as good as, as a reality. And it is just as hard to change perception as changing reality itself. Mm. So how do, you, how do you move that? Because from, as I see it, basically there's a certain level of tolerance exhibited by the, either the German or the British or all of that, but it is a limited how far that tolerance will be will be allowed to to to, to evolve and to to develop. Uh, well, it might be the case that um, humans are hardwired to be prejudiced against people who they think belong in out groups, right? And so they people are conditioned to to see themselves as part. They seek membership in social groups, and they 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 identify with certain groups to in which they belong and they, they want good things to happen to those groups and they see themselves competitively vis-a-vis -vis other groups, especially when there's resource conflict, right? So that's a premise that we begin from uh, in this book. And I think it's a premise that has received a lot of support in the literature and behavioral economics and, uh, and in other disciplines um, and in psychology, obviously. Um, I mean, if that's true, uh, and if developing prejudices is one way of, of channeling uh, the anxieties that people feel um, when they perceive identity threat, then it might be the case that it's just very difficult, if not impossible, to completely eliminate prejudice, right? So it might be the case that there will always be some degree of bias against minorities or or foreigners or, or you know immigrants or you know other other soccer teams or you know kids from another school or however you want to define uh, the outgroup you know in different in different contexts uh, but the you know that doesn't mean that society cannot 
you know, will be dysfunctional and that prejudice will actually lead to significant discrimination that hampers people's welfare. And that's where interventions, I think, need to focus on. I mean, we, they can also, we can try to develop interventions, you know, that target prejudice. I think psychologists have found that most cognitive type interventions to reduce prejudice have very small effects, you know. So, so for me, a perspective then, what are the, some of the forces that actually can shape the, the native behavior toward Muslim? Let's just say Germany. You're suggesting certain steps, certain measures can be taken in order to change the dynamics of the relationship between the two sides. What some of these measures, in your view, ought to take place in order to change the, the dynamic of the relationship between the two sides, given well, what we already discussed. Well, the book, unfortunately, doesn't go that far. So it's not it's not a prescriptive book. And uh, I wish I had policies to recommend that can eliminate bias and reduce intergroup conflict. But we know we make the first step in analyzing uh, the sources of prejudice and discrimination, identifying causal effects of, of Different variables that you know, and of you know, normative difference and values conflict um, as a determinant of uh, of bias, and and we show that bias can be overcome. You know, if those beliefs change, and if natives think that you know uh, immigrants are not that different from them in ways that really matter to natives. Right now, you're asking how do we how do we create that perception? You know, and I think that's the next step, and ideally uh, it's something that. You know, my co-authors and I can work on next. In uh, in Europe, the way that this has been attempted um, favors assimilationist policies. Basically, it favors policies that erase cultural difference. Right. So, you know, there are previous books and papers that have that have addressed this topic, and they point out, for example, that uh, black uh, Muslim immigrants in France are discriminated against in the uh, in the job market. Right, so you know if you send a resume uh, as a black Senegalese, you know to a to a job in uh, in France, and your your name suggests that you're Muslim as opposed to Christian, you're much less likely to receive a callback. You know, so you know that's like a standard audit study that people have done, and they and they have identified the religious difference as a cause of discrimination. And one policy recommendation that kind of flows naturally from that is that, well, you know, people can just change the names to standard, you know, traditional French names that are Christian sounding, and that should reduce uh, discrimination. And that would be, you know, an assimilationist, a type of assimilationist policy, which we in our book say might not be necessary to reduce conflict, right? And, I think that's important because most immigrants will perceive such such uh, such policies as repressive uh, and coercive, right? So in this country, definitely a lot of immigrant groups in this country, meaning in the United States, uh, many immigrant groups have have followed such assimilationist policies to fit in. You know, uh, people have shortened their names or they're taking American names so they don't sound Chinese or Greek or uh, you know whatever. Um, uh, and you know they do work, right? So if if uh, bias stems from the observation of of social distance created by ascriptive differences, right? Like uh, different language, say, then learning the language should reduce that distance. 
but there might be other ways and uh, you know to integrate and and we 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 focus on those other ways um, and you know it would be important for example to explore ways to communicate to native audiences the degree to which there is or is not cultural difference normative difference with immigrant groups right um, and how to do that is an interesting question right so there are cultural integration classes now in many European countries. So President Sarkozy in France suggested that way back. And, uh, and in many European countries, immigrants have to attend classes and they learn about the history of the, the country that they've migrated in, about the religion, customs, and so forth, right? So, you know, if uh, in Denmark, a, a new law was passed recently, maybe a, a couple of years ago, requiring immigrant children in neighborhood, poor neighborhoods where uh, families are on uh, welfare support to attend uh, Danish preschools for 20 hours a week. So they learn the language, they learn the customs, they learn to shake hands and you know, they learn about Easter, Christmas and all that. Uh, and such policies might actually backfire, you know, because they might backfire on families if the families feel that, that the state is intervening in their personal lives and it's trying to yeah. separate them from their culture, right? right. But so we, and we argue in our book that we should focus on civic values, right? Uh, and ways to, ways in which both immigrants and natives can behave as good citizens and establish that, that those behaviors and norms are actually shared, shared between the two groups. And if we do that, that should reduce bias. Uh, yeah, this could reduce the biases, I believe, to a certain extent. Uh, but when you talk, you know, I, I distinguish, and I think you're, you're alluding to that, between two things, that the civil adjustment, that they're adjusting from a civilian perspective in terms of the, uh, how, how a person, the environment in which a person lives, versus erasing their culture, that is adopting, completely abandoning their culture, and, uh, and, and embracing different, different, the culture of the host country, of a native country. And from what I know and see, that has never really worked well mm -hmm. at all. That is no minority has given up its culture, its language, and managed to assimilate and lost, been lost completely, even here in the United States. I think the United States experiment uh, has been to some to a great success because there was no requirement for any minority group to come, any immigrants to come, to give up their cultural background or to give up their language for that matter. As long as they meet, they meet the civic duties, the civic, the civic requirements. So there's a distinction between the two. And then we have a created a society of immigrants here that, that usually, that basically on the whole is working harmoniously, but that still did not, has not eliminated discrimination even of American citizens, let alone uh, new immigrants who are coming to this country. So the question that I have for you is then uh, an immigrant or on an individual basis, yes, they can assimilate. And perhaps by changing their name, adopting the language, uh, they could get be sort of, let's call it, put it in quote, lost in the society and no longer identified with their original uh, ethnicity. But as a group of people, that cannot happen because uh, it's uh, as a group, they're not willing as a group to abandon, to leave their culture. 
And, and so no matter what they're trying to do, as I see it, um, there's a still, uh, like you said in your book, there's a resistance, there's this embedded resistance because the perception remains the way it is. So how do you, how do you overcome that? Now that is when an immigrant try, let's say, try to everything they can in order to adjust, but they can go only up to a point beyond which they cannot not travel. Yes. How do you overcome that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it might not be possible to overcome the, the entire magnitude of, of bias and negative feeling that any, you know, an in-group feels towards another group as long as these distinctions between groups remain salient and they mean something to people, right? So one way to overcome it obviously is to just make those distinctions completely irrelevant, right? So you know, one way to overcome it would be, you know, if if we lived in a world where, you know, we could all agree that you know we shouldn't emphasize religious differences and where nationalist politicians wouldn't play on these differences to, to stoke uh, political support and mobilize support for their, uh, you know, for their purposes, then you know it would be possible for people to stop noticing that you know oh this person is Muslim, that person is Christian, and so forth. You know, and, and these differences would be meaningless, right? So then I think in such a world, uh, we do not need to have uh, intergroup conflict. And, and indeed we should, we should observe those, uh, those differences to become you know, much less significant, but we don't live in such a world as you mentioned in your opening uh, statement. In fact, we live in the opposite world where ascriptive differences are being emphasized more and more. And, and political elites use them um, for their own, you know, for their own purposes and, and motives as a way to mobilize support. So in such an environment, we might not be able to overcome differences. And in fact, in our book, um, we show that even when immigrants behave in a way that is very pro-social uh, and, and that shows that they respect the country that they've immigrated to and its norms, and that they are, they're perfectly, their behavior is perfectly consistent with prevailing norms among native society. Uh, that creates a change in natives' behavior towards those immigrants, but only towards those immigrants. So the positive effects of norm adherence by the immigrant um, confederates, the research assistants that we used in our experiments does not generate uh, bias reduction that applies more broadly to their group, right? And, right. And, and people still have negative views, people meaning German natives have still have negative views towards Muslims as a group. And what happens when a Muslim immigrant is observed to behave in a certain way that Germans really value and they think is indicative of, of, of a strong feeling of citizenship, what happens is that they think that this person is an exception. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a typical Muslim. Uh, it might be, it's an exceptional purpose and, and it's somebody who may have integrated um, into a new in-group that is shared between German natives and, and Muslim immigrants. And that shared in-group, you, know, you could think of as a citizen group, right? So they think of this person as a German citizen, not as a Muslim. If they start thinking of this person as a Muslim, then the negative feelings will, will re-emerge, right? 
So right. I think that's consistent with, with what you're saying. All right. Yeah, I, I just want to ask, you know, uh, uh, in dealing, for example, from my perspective in conflict resolution, one thing I, I, I try to establish first, that is the, com the conflict could be extremely complicated, uh, intractable. Uh, but uh, I, the way I want to, I talk, is first of all, find, try to find common denominators. That is a common interest. That's what they call um, finding the common interest and first cap build on that common interest. The same thing I would think in terms of immigration to a different country, that is, we are all, they are human, they're all human. They are, there must be some common differences. From your perspective, and I think you, you suggested that, we should be able to build on these common differences to ameliorate the, 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 the differences between the two sides. That is, they have vested common interest, we need to build on it. And that is a way by which to establish uh, a basis for continuing the amelioration between the two sides. To what extent do you think, from your perspective, it is as a tool by which to reduce, if not eliminate discrimination, is to focus on that. That is identifying what is common that both will be seeking. And that's common denominator. Would that be enough to build on from your perspective? Well, I think- What, what, are, I think these, what, are, what are these denominators? from, as, as you see it, say, in, in the case of Germany. Which are the denominators, you said, or? Yeah, that is what they have. They're obviously the immigrants and German natives as a human being have considerable amount of common interest in so many different, they all want to live happily. They all want to be friends. They would like to, to cooperate. They want to grow and progress together. So they have that common interest. Would that be enough? To, be, to build on it in order to reduce and eventually eliminate discrimination? Well, you know, to bring this back to the point you made earlier about, you mentioned track to diplomacy. I know that you've been involved in, in, in that. And I know there were several uh, programs and my, they might still be in existence, I'm not sure, but at least 20 years ago or so when I was looking, there were programs uh, designed to bring together policymakers and citizens from countries that were engaged in enduring rivalries, you know, like uh, Greece and Turkey, uh, or they brought, you know, people from ethnic groups that are in conflict, like Sinhalese and, and Tamils or uh, Israeli Jews and Palestinians. And, uh, and they, they brought them together in a neutral environment. And the idea was to let them understand and realize that they have these commonalities and common interests and to demystify the, the sources of their conflict and, and to create ties between them that should reduce uh, conflict, right? So, and then uh, I don't have, I'm, I haven't seen actually any good studies evaluating the effects of these programs, but my anecdotally, just by meeting some of these people who participated in those programs, I think what I, the pattern that I've noticed is that when they go, they work, you know, quote unquote, uh, when they're outside of their home context, but when they go back home and they're enmeshed in the, in the politics of the, of, of the conflict that brought them to the conflict resolution program in the first place, then they revert to their original positions. It's very difficult you know, to focus on commonalities and common interests when 
everyone around you is, is focusing on the opposite, right? And, uh, and when they're maximizing the differences and they're trying to create conflict. And I think that's the main issue here, right? So that there are a lot of voices that are louder perhaps than, than voices on the other side that are highlighting the, the differences between native and immigrant populations, you know? Um, and they make it hard to focus on the, on the common factors. Now in, in Germany, in our book on Germany, we focused on two examples of shared norms that we believe can actually help, can help reduce uh, discrimination if natives realize that they, they share those norms with immigrants. And, and you know, one is a universal type norm and concerns civic behavior that everyone really cares about. We, we used one example, which was the not littering in public spaces, which, you know, there's nothing holy about not littering. It's just one example, uh, one civic behavior that everyone agrees is important uh, to abide by, especially in a country like Germany. And, and we show experimentally what happens um, when immigrants demonstrate by their actions in a public space that they value these norms as much as German citizens do. Yes. And, and that, you know, so when they do that, we, you know, we show that uh, Germans reduce the degree to which to discriminate against people who, who actually show adherence to this norm, right? Not, they still, they still treat Germans better than they do immigrants, but, but they reduce that uh, bias by a bit. And then in another experiment, we focus on an example of what we call a group derived norm. And, and we take the discussion back to uh, gender equality, which is something that you talked about earlier, because there are many perceptions uh, out there uh, that um, Muslim immigrants will be uh, more conservative or perhaps regressive vis-a-vis -vis, uh, gender equality than, uh, you know, than the native population in Germany. Right? And we stage an intervention which allows bystanders to know what our Confederate's position is vis-a-vis -vis gender equality. And in the experiment, the Confederates sometimes have regressive beliefs towards gender and other times they have progressive beliefs towards gender. And then when they reveal their position towards gender, we then put them in a position where they require assistance by bystanders and we measure the degree to which bystanders offer. Uh, assistance to them as a function of the of the belief system that they have revealed that they share, right? And this intervention then shows that German natives discriminate against Muslims because they assume that they are regressive towards gender equality issues. But when those beliefs are corrected via our experimental intervention, discrimination stops for women only, right? So German women no longer discriminate against Muslim women when Muslim women reveal that they share progressive views uh, about you know, women in the workplace, for example. But German men uh, are unmoved by this experiment and they continue to discriminate against Muslim women regardless of the position that they take. So that points to, that result points to another difficulty in completely eliminating prejudice and bias, which is that even if you were to identify what you call the common denominator that 
you know, a common interest that, common interest. Unifies, that unifies uh, some groups among the native society with some immigrant groups, right? In this case, women, for example. Um, and the common denominator would be a shared belief in, in gender equality. That might not be enough to erase prejudice and bias in other social groups of the native society that do not care as much about that common denominator, right? So in this case, we found that men are just not impressed by um, our exper experimental intervention and their behavior doesn't really change when, native, when immigrant women reveal that uh, they are uh, progressive, you know, vis-a-vis, -vis. they don't have the, you know, the, they don't share the views that, that, that women should be subordinate to men. Right, right. Uh, so, and that could be applied to other areas as well, which means that it's not easy to find a single policy intervention, you know, that could work with everybody in society, right? Because you can, you can find something that if you highlight it, um, it can reduce bias in a segment of society, but it could actually work in a, in a different way uh, it, it can it can have zero effect in other parts of society, or it can actually backfire. You know, and it can create more more conflict. Right. Uh, I uh, want to go back again to what you are talking about in terms of, of Germany versus other European countries. Uh, from your research, and uh, I'm discerning that you identify that the culture of the host country obviously is going to have some kind of an impact on how they treat immigrants. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, uh, and you, of course, focus on Germany, which is it's a, quite a clear and fascinating. The question is, uh, how do you, what do you, can you identify, for example, the French approach or the British? Let's take these two countries. Oh, you mentioned, um, was it uh, uh, Switzerland? Not Switzerland. You mentioned uh, uh, Sweden mm -hmm. uh, before. And then forcing people to study the language to do this and this and that really backfire, it did not work. So let's look at the Britain and look at the France. And they have uh, they have their also share of immigrants, albeit not as large as Germany. Is the, is the French culture and the French native culture and the British native culture, is it in dealing with, with immigrants, does it differ dramatically from the German approach? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. Uh, our, our book, Unfortunately, it doesn't allow us to say anything concrete about uh, this country level differences because we focused only on, our evidence comes from analysis only within, within Germany. Uh, but there are a couple of things I can say in response to your question. First, Germany is not that different uh, in the extent to which the native population is hostile to immigrants. It's about, it's roughly in the middle, I would say. Uh, both in terms of uh, opposition to immigration and with respect to the openness of, uh, of, in of integrationist policies, of multiculturalist policies that it has proposed. So it's much better than Greece and, uh, and, and, and Hungary, let's say, but worse than Sweden and, and Norway. Right, right. If I may interrupt sure. you for one second on to what extent do you feel that World War II, World War I, but specifically World War II, and the, ex and the experience with Germany, that is, Germany having done what it has done in terms of 
uh, you know, uh, during the war, uh, the genocide, the destruction, all of that. Do you feel that the Germany, of course, there's a sense of guilt. I mean, that's, uh, they said that themselves, that the German, Germany, as a, you know, they have that sense of guilt. Do you think that is impact in terms of how they are treating the immigrants? So we'll continue with your, with your approach, but I would like you to touch on that point. To what extent the German historic experience in terms of the World War II and its consequences has had that kind of effect on how they treat immigrants? I, I mean, I, I would have to speculate. I'm not, that's, that's not something I've studied and I'm not German myself, uh, but I, 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 ha, I, I can point to one interesting result from our book, which may be related to what you're saying, which is that uh, we looked for evidence of discrimination against immigrants on the basis of uh, linguistic difference. Uh, uh, and we, we, we designed experiments uh, in which we gave people opportunities to behave differently towards uh, strangers whom they encountered in public spaces when those strangers spoke foreign languages, you know, Arabic or Turkish, for example, as opposed to German. And we found no evidence that Germans discriminate against them. Whereas in similar experiments in the United States, uh, other researchers uh, have found significant evidence of discrimination against people speaking Spanish, for example, right? And across countries in the literature and immigration, people have found that uh, linguistic difference is hugely important. Uh, and, it, and linguistic difference causes uh, significant bias, right? And we found none of that in Germany, right? Which is an interesting difference. And I don't know if this is related to what you said, you know, guilt perhaps, or uh, maybe it's a result of just having lived with very large numbers of immigrants who came to Germany as a result of the destruction that followed World War II with all the, the exchange programs with guest workers, you know, from the 50s and the 60s. Um, and therefore they have, you know, generations of, uh, of immigrants with whom they've, you know, large parts of German society has, um, has been accustomed, you know. So perhaps there's something there. And, and there's also like, if you look at cross country surveys, uh, like World Value Survey and you know, Eurobarometer and so forth, that measure the strength of national identification uh, using just, just basic questions. You know, usually they would ask people, how proud are you to be uh, American or Greek or Israeli or you know, German or whatever, you know? And, uh, I, I believe that uh, for, for the largest part of the post-war period, the percentage of Germans who say that they're very proud of their nationality and who identify very strongly as German is very, very low for, for an advanced industrialized country compared to, to the United States. I mean, I think there's like, 50 percentage points difference, you know, um, which could be related to, to what you talked about, you know. Um, yeah. even, even countries like Iraq, for example, which I happened to look at this uh, for a paper that I wrote once, uh, during the height of the civil war in Iraq, 90% uh, or more of the population would say that they were proud to be Iraqi, you know, and 
uh, I don't remember exactly the percentage for Germany, but it was something very low, like maybe 50%, which does not make sense for a country that is so important for, for uh, European politics and so powerful economically, right? Yeah, but you know, I mean, um, you look at terms of, uh, which is not directly related to in terms of foreign policy of Germany, uh, there's a reason in my view why Germany goes out of, of its way uh, success of the government uh, in support of Israel, almost blindly supporting Israel, because that sense of guilt against the, what they have done to, to the Jewish community in Europe. Uh, so I, I think there is some kind of a link to the historical, uh, what happened historically, uh, and that's how that is impacting their treatment of a new movement. That is, uh, the, the Germany is uh, for, for so many years, you know, living in this, the white white supremacy, white supremacy, which which is now from uh, the, they want to erase that uh, historic record, so to speak, to the extent they can, and to do so, there's a compensation. The compensation is we welcome immigrants, we welcome any, we, we are welcoming those in part, if not largely because of that historic uh, experience and because they do want to erase that uh, um, label of white supremacy. Do, again, I know having investigated uh, the, the immigration in Germany, have you come across that? That's what, that was really my, my main point. Yes, uh, well, I think the German approach to uh, immigrant integration focuses on uh, cultivating this shared civic values and norms, um, which could be consistent with what you're saying. So they don't emphasize ethnic assimilation. Um, they focus on civic integration uh, yes. as, as a goal, right? Which not all European countries do. Uh, so perhaps the, Perhaps the you know the French uh, prohibition uh, on the on the veil in public spaces yeah, yeah. was driven by a similar commitment to civic uh, integration and, in, and the separation of church and state, which is very French and and and, and so on. But it, it is perceived as a, as a policy designed to to eliminate religious difference, right? And 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 therefore not really focused on. Civic integration. But obviously, it's inconsistent also with the, with the French um, set of beliefs in terms of democracy, freedom. That is, if you forbid somebody from wearing A or B or C hijab or, or turban or whatever it is, that is contrary to what the, what the French stand as a country, as a free country, democratic country. But they are still, nevertheless, they are imposing or promoting that kind of, uh, of policy in order presumably to create a more cohesive society. Uh, but that's obviously is not working. Yeah, and to come back to your, to your original question about the culture of the host country and how it shapes the way that it treats immigrants and uh, whether there is a German way or a French way. Right. Uh, so to the extent that our argument is correct, then uh, there might be certain norms that are specific to different countries that are very important to emphasize uh, and to coordinate on uh, as a strategy to reduce bias and discrimination against immigrants. And these norms may be different in different countries, right? So 
we focused on things that we thought were important in, in Germany. Uh, those, those examples of norms that we focused on uh, might also apply to other countries, but it may very well be the case that um, there is a hierarchy of, of civic norms that, that is different in, let's say, Southern European countries versus Northern European countries, you know, or, uh, uh, or, or in specific countries. And so if you, were, if you were to try to develop policy interventions targeting native bias against immigrants, you'd have to first identify what these norms are, and then you have to identify ways to, to target right. them. And that, that's an interesting way to proceed. Uh, our book suggests that it might be a fruitful way to proceed, but um, you know, we've just made the first step, obviously. And in, in other research that I have now ongoing in Greece, for example, where I, uh, I plan to take this research next, I find that when you ask people, you know, you know, why do you, why are you hostile against immigrants? Most of them will say, well, you know, they don't want to integrate, they're too different from us. They don't believe the same things, right? Uh, and then when you follow up and you ask them, well, what are the three most important norms and beliefs that typical Greeks share, right? Or should have, you, I find that they really don't know you know, and, and uh, <laughs> they just have this very vague sense that there's something that defines national identity. And uh, I mean, most of them will say, you know, I don't know, eating lamb and Easter or something, but that can't be the core of, uh, of Greek identity, you know, any more than not littering in public is the core of German identity. So these things are stand-ins for other values that, that are kind of hard to, to pinpoint. Uh, and it would be good to try to figure out what these are, uh, because it might be the case that there's not as much difference between immigrant populations and natives as, as we might think when you come down when it comes down to it. Now, you know the a further a last comment I want to make about this is that this comparison between Greece and Germany, in particular, is is quite interesting because um, there are many differences between the countries, obviously, you know, one is rich, the other one's poor and so on. But, you know, another difference is that in Germany rules matter a lot uh, and everyone follows them. And in Greece rules matter in principle, but most people don't follow them, right? Uh, so, so I wonder if the approach that, that we took in Germany to test whether norm adherence is appreciated you know, by natives and therefore uh, immigrants who adhere to civic norms that matter for Germans are treated better. I wonder if that approach will also work in Greece in a society where people don't really value mm -hmm. uh, rule following, you know, as a, you know, as, as, as a practice basically. Right, right. Uh, I, you know, I, I would love to continue this conversation. It's fascinating with you. Uh, I just wanted to ask you this, um, this wonderful book that you have. Who do you think should read the book and learn from it? Uh, in, uh, you know, uh, what officials were, because obviously you're, you're, although you're not necessarily providing a specific step, specific recommendation, this is, has to take place A, B, C, and D, but you're obviously also providing significant analysis of the issue of immigration and the reaction of the various uh, you know, uh, host countries. 
uh, who do you think should be looking at this book and what benefit they would engender from it? Uh, the book was written with political scientists as uh, the audience, as a target audience and students in particular, because it uses cutting edge methods in experimental political science to test hypotheses. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they are the ideal consumers, you know, it's not just political scientists, but also in economics and other social sciences. Right. But it is written in such a way, I believe that it is accessible even to people who don't have technical background and the technical analysis itself is, is, not, is not that extensive. A lot of the, the more complicated things are in supplements and appendices or in published articles. So I hope that a more general audience uh, that is interested on immigration and the integration of, of, of uh, newcomers in, in their societies across Europe, not just Germany, will read it. And I think there are lessons that can be drawn from this book for audiences in, in many countries, including in the, in the United States. And it would be interesting for me to think about you know, ways that this work can be extended to other contexts you know, or modified uh, and to figure out you know, where does it apply and where, where doesn't it apply. And I think those insights uh, are more likely to come from uh, non-specialists you know, who Mm -hmm. who, will, who will think, oh, you know, this sounds right or this doesn't sound right. And then they will have ideas and examples that they can bring to the table to explain, you know, why, why the logic is intuitively right or intuitively wrong in the, in the case. Okay, we, 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 I will I look forward to your next, uh, next book where you can come up also with the specific steps <laughs> that, uh, uh, that perhaps universally applicable you know, to the extent possible, obviously. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. It was really an enlightening conversation with you. And I hope that we'll have a chance to meet and we'll have another podcast when you have your new book <laughs> coming up. Thank you, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.